You're listening to the Verse Podcast. Life in this society being, at best, an utter bore, and no aspect of society being at all relevant to women, there remains to civic-minded, responsible, thrill-seeking females only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation, and destroy the male sex. Welcome to the Verso podcast. Today we'll be discussing, as you may have guessed from that famous quotation, the Scum Manifesto by Valerie Solanus. My name is Sophie Mayer, writer and critic, and I have with me today Juliet Jakes and Ray Filar. Juliet is a freelance writer whose most recent book is Trans, a memoir published by Verso. She has written for The Guardian, The New Statesman, Granta, Sight and Sound, The London Review of Books, and she is currently working on a creative and critical writing PhD. Ray Filar is a freelance writer and performance artist. They are the co-editor of Transformation at Open Democracy and the editor of the book Resist Against a Precarious Future published by Lawrence and Wishart. They're next performing at the Man Up competition at the Glory. So we couldn't really have two more perfect discussants for today's text. Sexuality. Unhampered by propriety, niceness, discretion, public opinion, morals, the respect of assholes. Always funky, dirty, low-down scum gets around and around and around. They've seen the whole show, every bit of it. The fucking scene, the dyke scene. They've covered the whole waterfront, been under every dock and pier. The Peter pier, the pussy pier. You've got to go through a lot of sex to get to anti-sex, and scum's been through it all. And they're now ready for a new show, but they want to crawl out from the other dock, move, take off, sink out. But scum doesn't yet prevail. Scum's still in the gutter of our society, which, if it's not deflected from its present course, and if the bomb doesn't drop on it, will hump itself to death. So, Ray, can you say a bit about why you chose that reading as an introduction to who scum were envisioned as? I think this is the place in the text where the people, the women who Valerie Solanus is talking about are given the best and the most violent and arrogant description. There's a bit where she, where she describes them as hateful, violent bitches giving to slamming those who unduly irritate them in the teeth. And I feel like that's both really amazing and really brave and cool Um, and just completely unafraid. That's the whole thing about this book. She's completely unhampered by any of the niceties that generally attend feminist writing, usually feminist writing from this time and after. um, Envisages the perfect feminist subject as this kind of like, either like an earth mother who's very culturally hippie-ish and um, peaceful and pacifist or at least as a kind of respectable society changing woman who will do at the most a bit of civil disobedience but this is like pure outrageous violence and I think that that's inspiring. Yeah there's a point in the text where Solana suggests that civil disobedience is more or less the most useless thing you can do it's just a classic sort of radical or sort of inverted commas extremist sort of argument that suggests that a sort of reformist approach to a system is absolutely the worst thing you can take because it upholds it. I think that's something that's disappeared from a lot of radical writing is that refusal of any sort of collaboration with a system that you you find abhorrent. 
And part of the reason perhaps it's disappeared is that the Scum Manifesto has always been an underground text. It was self-published by Solanus and um, Verso are delighted to be republishing it this month. Um, And it's circulated by strange byways to our culture. Uh, Solanus herself created one of the greatest launch campaigns in history when shortly after publication she shot Andy Warhol for losing her play script, securing notoriety, although also incomprehension for her text and its rationales. Without that shooting, it's likely we may never heard of the book as Um, As Ray said, subsequent feminist writing of the late 60s and early 70s tended towards consensus building, consciousness raising and civil disobedience. Although Solanus writes about scum as a collective or plural entity, she was pretty much scum by herself. She wasn't part of any of the organisations that were forming in New York at the time. In her introduction, Avatar Ronell writes that Solanus's quote, fringe existence was part of the package deal of untimely impacts aspects of which derive from Stonewall and other American inventions of resistance. Valerie was not meant to have disciples or spawn a new breed of revolutionaries. And yet here we are. So how did you come across the text and what impact has it had on you? I first encountered the text through Mary Harron's film, I Shot Andy Warhol, which was released in, I think, 1996. And I think I first saw her a year or two later when it was broadcast on BBC Two, back when the BBC would show films based on the work of Valerie Solanus. It feels like another, it's like the National Coal Board or something now. It feels like a completely different age. But that was where I first saw it. It was a dramatisation of Solanus's relationships, uh, obviously with Andy Warhol, with Maurice Chirodias, the Olympia Press publisher, who was actually the person she originally wanted to shoot for not publishing her. Uh, Warhol was a sort of second choice. But mainly with Candy Darling, who was sort of in the film and in Talanis's sort of text, the words drag queen are used, but Candy was probably closer to what we'd call a trans woman now. So that was my first encounter with the text, and the text featured quite a lot in the film. I was really struck by the way the film ends. Um, after all this sort of narrative has been concluded it ends with lily taylor who's playing valerie solanus talking directly to the camera with a copy of the scum manifesto and concluding the film by reading the part saying look why should there be future generations why do we need to breed at all which is an interesting contrast to shulamith firestone's sort of conception of artificial reproduction uh, in the dialectic of sex which is published a couple of years after this so that was my first encounter with with Solanus and with the manifesto. I mean, I also was quite struck by the references to it. Uh, At the age of 17, I had a really unhealthy obsession with the Holy Bible by the Manic Street Preachers. Um, I don't think there's a healthy way to be obsessed with that record. My favourite song on the album was Of Walking Abortion, which was drawn from Solanus's sort of line that, you know, the, the male... The Y chromosome is an aborted X chromosome. And the sort of anger and intensity of, of that song and the quotes from Solanus that were sort of placed around it drew me back to drew me back to her. So I got a copy of the script for I, I Shot Andy Warhol, which was published with the Scum Manifesto, sort of dual edition, and, and read the manifesto and sort of as an eighteen year old pre transitional trans woman felt quite similar then to how I do now about it actually, and that, you know, I admire the sort of fury the passion the intensity of the text there were certain things like the advocation of the complete abolition of the money system and of reproduction that chime with me at the time and and 
highlighted how absurd these things seemed to me. There are other things I didn't really agree with at all. But I think it was an important piece of training in a way to to read a text, actually. I get very frustrated with this approach to reading articles, books, whatever, where if you find one thing you sort of disagree with or don't like, then you, you throw the whole thing out. And um, I don't think there's many people who would read the Scum Manifesto and think, yeah, I agree with every word of this, but there are a lot of interesting things you can take from it. In contrast to Julia, I encountered it directly. Um, I think it was one of those ones that I picked up in the library by chance um, when I was an undergrad and I just started, I'd been a feminist for however many years, but I just started reading about radical feminism and, and without really understanding much of the shape of different kinds of feminism, I picked up all of these angry militant texts and been like, wow, there are a bunch of women saying these things that you're not supposed to say. And that is amazing. Um, and Scum Manifesto was one of the books that I read at the time. And I think that when I first encountered it, the, my reaction was shock because, because of exactly that, because women are not supposed to say violent things about men. It's supposed to be the other way around. And we accept that there's a, a status quo in which men are allowed to say women are weak and women are stupid and passive and lesser and inferior. And it's okay for women to push back against that. But if women's pushback goes into the realm of actually it is men who are passive and weak and need to be eliminated, then that's too much. And so seeing this book, at first I was shocked and then I think I moved into a stage of reading it as something akin to a gospel and um, being one of the very few people who potentially at some point agreed with every word um, if in a, you know maybe like a bit of an ironic way but also a sort of like internal hopeful hey there's someone who's written this text cool so yeah so for a while it was something that I took on board and found as a kind of like secret, angry, violent tract um, to be something to follow and something to, to think about as like a legitimate form of feminist expression. I don't still think that completely. Reading it again in the last few days, I think I've come back to it and I do think that there are a massive amount of problematic elements and I don't probably think that everybody, particularly men, but also including women, should be killed immediately these days but it's definitely something to you know think about also at some point there was uh me and my friend ruth had a band called scum musifesto which i really think should have been a, a bigger hit than it was time for a revival of scum musifesto and to go with the revival of the scum manifesto it's being published again in 2016 it's a very different landscape of feminisms and gender politics to 68 and even to 1996 when i shot andy warhol by mary harron was released i wonder if you could have a guess or tease out a bit the kind of how it's going to land into the landscape of 2016 are there feminist writers now or queer theorists now whose work is chiming with solanus or with the energy of her writing or is it going to arrive as a radical proposition either because people will be countering it or because they'll be taking it up once again? I think people will be split between uh, the people who see this as a wildly problematic book and who think that we should reject it as a product of a problematic strand of feminism from the past. It is massively biologically essentialist. It is completely constructed around the idea that there are these two genders, men and women, and you know, maybe a few things in between. She talks a lot about faggots as, as uh, like the femme men who she thinks are better than some other men, but still ultimately need to be killed. She talks a little bit about drag queens. There's one mention of dykes. But essentially, 
the book is framed around the idea that there's these two genders and one of the genders is shit and that's men and I think that people in a kind of trans and queer political landscape will read that and think that it's outdated and transphobic and racist and awful there are some of the people who I think will take it as a cultural product and an interesting one I know that the queer filmmaker Bruce LeBruce is making a film called The Misandrists currently, which is to do with a radical lesbian feminist militant cell who capture him and potentially kill him. I actually kind of think that this film looks terrible and I feel really angry that it's a guy making it, but I'm prepared to watch it and find it arousing even so. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm intrigued to see what the reception of the text will be. I mean, 1968 is such a sort of loaded political moment for people interested in the sort of radical or revolutionary left and this text may well land as yet another sort of relic from that time that that people on the radical left look at and think oh why isn't radical left culture like this now what happened to it what happened to us so i think that's a possibility and i was really struck by the parallels between Solanus's sort of critiques of just how boring Western life is and the similar ones in um, The Revolution of Everyday Life by Ralph Anagum, which sort of sprang out of the same political moment. Uh, and the situation is international for, for a lot of particularly male readers, I think, inspires the same sort of response, the same sort of frustration that things aren't now like they were then um, and that the sort of dreams and ideas in these sort of texts were never really realised. I think it might be seen as as a sort of interesting curio in certain quarters i mean one of the things that struck me about solanus's text is that you've you've talked already about how individual solanus was and how scum was essentially just solanus because it's not really a text you can sort of build a, a school around because it's so annihilationist i think i want to say nihilist but i think annihilationist is uh, is better it's a hard sort of text to launch a sort of theoretical discourse from it's a hard text to sort of build on in that way i think it's something you would have to act upon rather than you know it's not like a sort of mark some of the sort of marxist texts where you know people are sort of constantly refining them rewriting them re-asking the same questions i don't think the thing that i was just thinking when you were talking about other um texts that it stands in situation to was um you know the book queer ultraviolence which was from i think maybe I'm not sure exactly when it was, maybe 10 years ago now, but there's been a, a second edition as well. Um, and, and it's a book, it's almost like a direct follow-on from the Scum Manifesto in that it's a set of essays by different queer collectives, mostly in America, who advocate insurrectionary violence as forms of, of uh, decidedly uncivil criminal resistance. And I think that that leads directly out of this. And it's, it's the kind of thing that you can organise around, even if it's an individual act of disobedience or violence. The, the Queer Ultra Violence book, the, it's like a kind of uh, a collection of essays um, about a lot of different queer groups, including the Bashback groups, which were a kind of a moment in time, which I think are completely uh, contiguous with what Solanus, the kind of approach that Solanus is advocating towards politics and resistance. Yeah, okay. So that idea of taking taking the sort of approach that this text takes, but updating it to you know as you've sort of already alluded to a far less well no, as you've already said a far less essentialist and sort of binary approach to to gender that could be interesting i mean that's obviously the main problem with the text as far as it sits within sort of contemporary feminism i mean since this text was published 
you had the sort of 70s um, sort of culture wars around uh, transsexual and trans people and their relationship with American feminist movements. Um, you know, some equally aggressive texts directed at trans people uh, at the end of the 70s in particular um, and the sort of ascendancy and resistance to those ideas within feminism which you know is a really long discourse i mean this this is an old text now it's nearly 50 years old so i think that will affect the reception an awful lot um and also you know what you have had is um a handful of women who have been heads of government um which hadn't happened at the time this was written uh, and, and, you know, as a sort of quite provocative note, I've picked out a passage on page 57 where Solanus talks about the kind of women um, who are sort of worthy of, of the name and writes, such conversation is hardly rampant as only completely self-confident, arrogant, outgoing, proud, tough-minded females are capable of intense, bitchy, witty conversation. And I've just written a little note saying all of this could be applied to Margaret Thatcher. That seems like a, a good point at which to hear some of what Solanus thought about what she thought of as the other gender, men, and a point in the text at which she is trying to tease out who would be allowed to survive in her world. And it's not as blanket as she insinuates from the beginning. Um, this is a section from page 73 to 74, which is really a list poem for me. There are two list poems, one of the kind of men she'll allow to survive and one of the kind of men that she won't, um, which make an interesting comparison with the, the future forms of women that Juliet has intimated. Scum will kill all men who are not in the men's auxiliary of scum. Men in the men's auxiliary are those men who are working diligently to eliminate themselves. Men who, regardless of their motives, do good. Men who are playing pal with scum. A few examples of the men in the men's auxiliary are men who kill men, biological scientists who are working on constructive programs as opposed to biological warfare, journalists, writers, editors, publishers, and producers who disseminate and promote ideas that will lead to the achievement of scum's goals, faggots who, by their shimmering, flaming example, encourage other men to demand themselves and thereby make themselves relatively inoffensive, men who consistently give things away, money, things, services, men who tell it like it is, so far not one ever has, who put women straight, who reveal the truth about themselves, who give the mindless male females correct sentences to parrot, who tell them a woman's primary goal in life should be to squash the male sex, and to aid men in this endeavor, scum will conduct turd sessions, at which every male present will give a speech beginning with the sentence, I am a turd, a lowly abject turd, then proceed to list all the ways in which he is. His reward for doing so will be the opportunity to fraternize after the session for a whole solid hour with the scum who will be present. Nice, clean living male women will be invited to the sessions to help clarify any doubts and misunderstandings they may have about the male sex. Makers and promoters of sex books and movies, etc., who are hastening the day when all that will be shown on the screen will be suck and fuck. Males like the rats following the Pied Piper will be lured by pussy to their doom, will be overcome and submerged by and will eventually drown in the passive flesh that they are drug pushers and advocates who are hastening the dropping out of men. Being in the men's auxiliary 
is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for making scum's escape list. It's not enough to do good. To save their worthless asses, men must also avoid evil. A few examples of the most obnoxious or harmful types are rapists, politicians, and all who are in their service, campaigners, members of political parties, etc. Lousy singers and musicians, chairmen of boards, breadwinners, landlords, owners of greasy spoons and restaurants that play Muzak, great artists, cheap pikers and welchers, cops, tycoons, scientists working on death and destruction programs or for private industry, practically all scientists, liars and phonies, disc jockeys, men who intrude themselves in the slightest way on any strange female, real estate men, stockbrokers, men who speak when they have nothing to say, men who sit idly on the street and mar the landscape with their presence, double dealers, flim-flam artists, litter bugs, plagiarizers, men who in the slightest way harm any female, all men in the advertising industry, psychiatrists and clinical psychologists, dishonest writers, journalists, editors, publishers, etc., censors on both the public and private levels, all members of the armed forces, including draftees, LBJ and McNamara give orders, but servicemen carry them out, and particularly pilots. If the bomb drops, LBJ won't drop it, a pilot will. In the case of a man whose behavior falls into both the good and bad categories, an overall subjective evaluation of him will be made to determine if his behavior is, in the balance, good or bad. We do need to obviously get into the politics of this list and some of the ways in which he's trying to pass perhaps critiques of binary gender or moving beyond normativized gender categories and her discussion of female males and male women and what she's thinking about the gay men and trans women that she's seeing at the factory but the joie de not really the joie de vivre the sort of joie de tuer the joy of killing in that writing is absolutely amazing as ray as you were saying that's not something that we usually expect to hear from marginalized people that's usually the voice of the status quo so why is her writing still so exciting and thrilling there's this sort of brilliant mix of sort of a part of me wants to say irony but it's not irony this sort of mix of hilarity and sincerity uh that is that just really runs through that passage in particular the passage about the most obnoxious and harmful types of men uh you know includes some things that very few people would would disagree with but it also just includes lots of quite idiosyncratic things lots of just really funny sort of um sweeping generalizations that uh, are very kind of amusing and not necessarily completely unfair i mean i'm with ray and just loving that line men who speak when they have nothing to say um you know there's just some really kind of odd lines in there i I still have no idea what pikers and welchers are um or, or you know some things that are so general as to be kind of absurd or flim flam artists uh or some things that are quite petty like litter bugs <laughs> the use of the word litter bugs is brilliant like someone who wants to completely destroy society is so angry that people are dropping litter exactly yeah. sort of this this could have been like the angriest letter to the council ever written if valerie had been in tunbridge wells rather than new york then uh, then it would have been furious and i think she would she would hate this comparison but just because she 
she says liars and phonies. There's something of Holden Caulfield's voice in there, that excoriation of society that belongs to the invention of adolescence and the emergence of sort of underground pop culture. Well, I read that round about the same time as I read this and came to it through sort of similar sources. Uh, and there were both books that really kind of struck with me. And when I was younger, um, sort of pre-transition was much more taken with, with Holden Caulfield and, and I would lean much more towards this text now. Yeah, I always found Holden Caulfield quite boring. I, I also, I feel like this really situates her in a particular place. The fact that she she has to point out that owners of Greasy Spoons and restaurants that play music are like very much on the top of the firing line. It makes you think that she's sitting in a Greasy Spoon writing on a piece of paper with no money, getting frustrated at the terrible music that's being played. Um, and the fact that it's kind of, it's not unreflective, the inclusion is deliberate. And that makes me think that she's, She's deliberately being funny here, even though she's also angry. Again, as a sort of temporal thing, you know, lots of people are quite nostalgic for Greasy Spoons now. If she was writing now, she'd be angry about Starbucks. Or you know. I'm just laughing at thinking about Valerie Solanus' Starbucks manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's also the uh, the bit on the page before, which is my favourite bit of the entirety of the manifesto, where um, she talks about making men come to turd sessions where they have to give a speech beginning with the sentence I'm a turd a lowly abject turd which I just think is perfect because it's so base and it's it's so stupid and so great it's also something that I've used during sex a couple of times um to make men read that to me um and I have to say that even though Solanus would have like completely hated that usage of it I feel like she's done us all a public service in giving us material for sexual fantasy the book is quite anti-sex, isn't it? It is quite anti-sex, um, as that passage we heard at the beginning, um, that scum has gone through forms, particularly forms of public sex, which go back, Ray, to what you were saying about that she seems to be living her life very much in public. This is a very anti-bourgeois text as well, that she, you know, scum have gone to the pier, they've been under the pier, and now they've come out to the other side and are, are anti-sex. But... What I'm, what fascinates me about this passage and throughout the book is that she's starting to produce these differently gendered forms of male females and um, it gets quite confusing at points where you're like, okay, are the clean living male women the members of scum? In which case, who are the mindless male females? So she's wrestling with like only having zero and one to try and produce a set of numbers but at the same time she is very committed to essentialism and Juliet as you said some of the ways in which she's talking about the community that was around her are limited and problematic and I think we need to perhaps talk about that as well. Yeah I mean her her characterization of, of gay men is very kind of reductive I think. I mean there's very little discussion I mean there's no discussion really of trans people um and i guess at this time sort of transsexual people would have been the most sort of visible and had the most sort of clear identity there's no discussion of that really there's a very brief line about getting men to become women in sort of psyche as well as body so there's an awareness of this as a sort of technological possibility but that's not really developed um but the passages about sort of faggots like fulfilling themselves as drag queens I mean, firstly, there's very little explanation of like why or how that would be 
fulfilling and I kind of wanted to read a bit more about that but also yeah I mean it just generalizes sort of all gay men as you know sort of very femme and you know ignores a whole host or is sort of unaware of a whole host of conflicts within gay male communities that sort of you know for example in you know 1930s Germany the sort of homo nationalist sort of more masculine gay men who form part of the SA around kind of Ernst Rome and people like that and then the the more femme end that sort of overlap quite a lot with kind of early trans people around the Magnus Hirschfeld like Institute for Sexual Science and that doesn't feature in the text at all so yeah I find her sort of characterization of, of gay men um, just very limited and very limiting. Yeah we were talking before um, the podcast about the fact it's interesting that Valerie Solanas who was for a while dead set on getting into this Warhol group and being part of that artistic collective and who had relationships and friendships with trans women she decides not to mention that in this book and except for the one line that Juliet mentions uh where it seems almost almost like pro trans in a, in a kind of weird way where she says that like the only thing really to be done is for men to become women and that that would be better but I, I've been thinking about how it you can you can create a sort of interesting reading of this book as both an anti-queer and a queer text because the constant motivating argument is that at heart men are women and women are men and that's the strand that runs through the whole thing she believes that all of the things that we say about women are in fact the things that are true about men so when we say that women are inferior that's a male fantasy that covers up the fact that it's really men who are inferior and vice versa um, and she's really dead set on this and in fact it's not particularly a strong part of the book but it but she refuses to let it go even when it becomes kind of incoherent and that I think is a really queer thing and it shows that in some sense she's reaching towards there being a way out of the kind of male female binary but she doesn't quite know what to do with it um, and then at the same time as Juliet says there's all this anti-drag queen stuff there's all this characterization of femme gay men as better than other men but still not great um, and she doesn't mention trans men at all. It's not, I don't know if she knew any trans men, but I assume that they were around where she was around. And I think in that it follows in the, in the tradition of most writing, most art, and just kind of writing trans men and trans mass people out of the picture, despite the fact that we've always been around. And she talks about dykes, I think, only once. And I think that maybe what that is, is just that she's decided that because scum anti-sex it's kind of irrelevant that some women are lesbians because they'll have to shape up quickly um even so it's clear that there's a lot that's missing and that perhaps that's a deliberate omission because it doesn't fit with her schema and as Juliet quoted earlier her identification of the ideal scum person is a woman who is witty bitchy out there so takes on characteristics that have more traditionally been associated with public masculinity that's why i say i feel like she's trying to produce large numbers while just working with zero and one and also just a, a bit that always strikes me when i read it that there's a very personal source of this for her which is to do with her relationship with her own family and maybe that's, you know, not very revelatory, certainly for Shulamith Firestone and others. Also, the domestic relationship with a dominant and domineering father um, produced a certain set of ideas, initial ideas about masculinity. So where she writes about fatherhood, she identifies fatherhood as what produces these males who are afraid of what she thinks of as the feminine aspects of themselves. So 
she's interested in the way in which children are hostage to fortune as well and that's something that appears in sort of that early second wave feminism and then I think is really radical is thinking about early childhood formation and disappears as well she doesn't talk about it for very long but I don't know if that's something that stood out for you guys because I when I read it I don't think when she says male or female I don't think she's talking about masculine women or trans mass people I think she's talking about heterosexual women and women who are married to men and who support men and that's what she means when to me when when she says male female I think that's what it's about I think it's the same people that Andrea Dworkin talks about as collaborators and those are the women who at the end she seems to also want to have annihilated but as you say it's not it's as a theoretical framework it's not really very expanded upon yeah I had a similar response to those those passages really um yeah there were ideas that I'd encountered elsewhere you know you could you could give them a very kind of you know psycho psychological reading which Solanus would have really hated I think but I like the way she extrapolates that sort of, you know, these sort of personal, very small family as sort of building blocks in a patriarchal society. Um, you know, that, that still resonated, even if it wasn't an idea that I first came across there. You know, similar things appear in um, Engels, The Origin of the Family, Private Property in the State, which is, what, 1870s or 80s, I think. So a lot earlier. Um, and one of the most striking moments in... The film I shot Andy Warhol actually is quite near the end where Solanus appears on a television program I'm not sure which show but with this very kind of old-fashioned stuffy patriarchal man who is sort of by terms sort of sneering patronizing dismissive and misogynistic and the, the thing that really makes Solanus snap is the way he keeps referring to her as a sort of mannish lesbian and sort of saying look you're not a woman and I wonder how much of Solanus's sort of adherence to a certain kind of binary came from constantly being told that she had sort of transgressed its borders and that she shouldn't have done. I find that quite interesting. So one of the few positive definitions that Solanus gives of what a fully realised scum person might look like is on page 49 which says in actual fact the female function is to explore, discover, invent, solve problems, crack jokes, make music all with love. In other words create a magic world which is the kind of positivity that is not often associated with this text but one of the charges that is often thrown against leftist thinking is that it's negativist it's nihilist and not only does Solanus have this positive imprint quite joyous imprint of what it would be how it would be possible to live if everyone embraced this critique but she also has future oriented solutions as well as a critique of the contemporary kind of turn on, tune in, drop out culture that is supposedly the the kind of lefty solution of the time. Yeah, I mean, her critique of that kind of late 60s sort of hippie culture um, is searing and furious and irreverent and hilarious. Um, here's a little bit of it. The most important, she talks about the commune that people want to set up and says that, look, this is no more a community than normal society and writes that the most important activity of the commune, the one upon which it's based, is gangbanging. The hippie is entitled to the commune mainly by the prospect for free pussy, the main commodity to be shared, to be had just for the asking, but, blinded by greed, 
he fails to anticipate all the other men he has to share with, all the jealousies and possessiveness for the pussies themselves. And it really gets how actually just, yeah, sort of greedy and individualistic that sort of culture was while claiming to be very kind of communitarian. And obviously later history has borne that out. A lot of the people who are interested in those ideas in the late 60s, you know, ended up being like execs at big companies or banks or whatever. And I just love the the passage that you read. Um, you know, that's uh, a quite wide and, and, you know, a definition of utopia that needs further sort of unpacking. But yeah, actually, in lots of ways, this is quite a utopian text. And again, this is where it overlaps with Shulamith Firestone, I think. Yeah, there's a bit just towards the end, um, which maybe we could read a bit of, where she's basically proposing, she says she wants a completely automated society. So it's an early version of fully automated luxury communism um, before most of the men we know who talk about it start talking about it. Um, she also talks about uh, the elimination of money. She says after the elimination of money there will be no further need to kill men. They will be stripped of the only power they have over psychologically independent females. And I think that's really important um, because sometimes the anarchist elements of this text get written out or forgotten when we're talking about it but it's actually like a work of anarchist feminism and as we're saying, of, of utopianism. And yeah, before Firestone and before the wave of um, techno-feminist, cyber-feminist stuff that came later, she's saying, let's automate everything because she doesn't really believe in the necessity to re- reproduce future generations. There's not necessarily a discussion of uh, divorcing the reproductive function from women, which Firestone talks about. But nevertheless, she's envisaging an anarchist world in which individuals rise up, automate everything, get rid of jobs. There's a really nice bit, which seems kind of as if it's almost joking, but it's not, where she says that one of the first steps of the scum revolution is that people are going to unwork. And she talks about scum being telephone operators and just kind of refusing to do it and fucking it up. And that's really central to her vision of a society that just kind of gradually is destabilised by acts of violence and by people refusing to work and by getting rid of money and then by killing men and then by killing everyone. I mean, one one of the things that I did, I'm slightly ashamed to say, really note in that passage that you mentioned where Solanus talks about, yeah, like unworking and telephone operators kind of like going into a job and just like deliberately sabotaging it and then just says, then they can just get another job. And I kind of thought, that doesn't really work like that. No, her vision of the one after being a telephone operator, the next um, tactical strategy is to work in the subway and give out subway tokens for free. The the vision of automation that we have now is so much to do with removing that kind of ability to put press to press on the levers of production that it's taken out of the hands of people like subway operators and telephone operators, which were jobs where working class women did organise and organised in solidarity across um, races as well, that I think her manifesto would need to be even more extreme today because she ends with a vision that I think still seems totally inspiring. Um, She says that once money has been eliminated and 
men have become useless. Women will be busy solving the few remaining unsolved problems before planning their agenda for eternity and utopia, completely revamping educational programs so that millions of women can be trained within a few months for high-level intellectual work that now requires years of training. This can be done very easily once our educational goal is to educate and not perpetuate an academic and intellectual elite. Solving the problems of disease and old age and death and completely redesigning our cities and living quarters so there's this huge ambition there yeah i forgot about that there's that bit where she says we basically have the technology now to cure cancer we just need to do it and i'm not sure that there's any evidence for that at the time but she believes it so absolutely that we're going to win out over death and disease and really it's just a matter of taking power and making it happen well, this, this is it. It's such a strange counterpoint to the sort of annihilationist animus that runs through this text is that it also sort of advocates stopping reproduction, but finding ways of getting the people who are already here to live forever. And it kind of it makes me think also about also that it's not necessarily supposed to be a coherent whole. It's a text that has a lot of deliberate contradictions in it. And I think that Valerie Solanus was not stupid and knew that when she was writing it. And perhaps that's an invitation to engage with it in the way we're doing now, to sort of take some bits on and to reject some other bits as irrelevant now. And I like that. Yeah, I mean, I like the way it sort of stands against the whole sort of idea of sort of consistency and and not contradicting yourself. And it's sort of aware that if you hold these sorts of opinions or feelings or ideas in a sort of society that's sort of set up to stop them being realised, then there are always going to be points where you're unable to kind of completely live your principles but you you know you have to take a more sort of relativist approach to to how you try and enact them um i think there's a lot of awareness of that in the text as well on one level or another it's another thing that really appeals so as critical thinkers we need to be forming the society for cutting up texts (laughs) but not in a william burroughs way not in a william burroughs way no i think Yes, I think Valerie would have enjoyed the Kathy Acker comparison and Acker was certainly a fan of Solanus's work. Um, hopefully all of you listening will engage with the text yourselves, whether through the book or the badges. And I hope you'll engage with Julia and Ray's writing as well. And I hope you'll be listening in next time on the Verso podcast. <laughs>